Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 10, we'll be starting in verse 17, and we'll go through the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 10, 17 to 27, where we're going to be. There's a spirit of defiance that frequently is found in the young. It's that spirit that says, no one can tell me what to do. It's that spirit that routinely leads the young into trouble and places them in need of rescue time and again, where frequently the adult is left saying, I told you so. But if we're honest, that spirit doesn't always fade with age, does it? In our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, we find that same spirit of defiance to leadership is as common in adults often, and maybe even worse, than it is in children. It just takes often forms that are less overt. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's been so long since he's done my job, he's obviously forgotten the best ways to do it. My way is obviously better. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. What business does she have telling me how to do my job? I'm sure you've heard other people say things like this. This morning we're going to read a story that will be familiar to some of you. But this story is likely familiar for one of its funnier parts, one of the more humorous aspects when Saul is hiding out amongst the baggage. And our attention is often drawn to God's people having a reluctant king. Here's Saul who's been named king and he seems quite reluctant to be so. But actually the point of the passage is drawn in on the people's refusal to submit to that reluctant king. Let's look at our passage, 1 Samuel 10, 17-27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Now may we understand it. We pray that you would help us open our hearts and ears and mind, and may we as a people 
revere your word that is before us. Understand your message from it and apply it to our hearts. Give us hearts to hear and understand and apply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's important anytime we begin a, a study through a book or anytime we're in a study for the book that we remind ourselves of the context that it falls in. Because it's always going to help you every time you pick up any part of the Bible to study to remember what's happening in the context. Now, the religious climax, or the, sorry, the religious climate um, of this time period in 1 Samuel is probably best summed up by the author of Judges in the last verse of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, remember, the book of 1 Samuel takes place right at the tail end of the book of Judges and then on into the future, long into the future actually. But right there, it begins right there at the end of the book of Judges. And so that verse at the end of Judges helps to inform what the people are actually like during this time. This isn't the Israel that we're used to, that maybe we've seen in the Old Testament, have God's law, that's supposed to obey God's law and sacrifice and those kinds of things. No, far from it. This is a group of people who have no king over them and do any, whatever is right in their own eyes. And so as a result of Israel's idolatry and wickedness, what we see in 1 Samuel is that the voice of God is virtually silent at the beginning of the book. He's not speaking to anyone. So the story of 1 Samuel opens on this family that is unlike what we find described in the book of Judges. This family in Hannah and Elkanah, they seem to be not only, if they're doing what's right in their own eyes, it's leading them to the temple to worship. It's leading them to a place where they want to sacrifice to the Lord, where they actually care what He thinks, where Hannah is praying to Him regularly. And so it's particularly odd because their family is behaving not like anyone else is. They're actually revering the Lord. And so you have Elkanah, who's, who is the husband, and Hannah, who is one of the wives. It's not all glorious, all right, but it's better, right? She's one of the wives, but she's barren, and so she desperately wants a child. And so she prays for one, and she prays, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate his entire life to your service uh, all the days of his life. And, and the Lord grants her request, and he gives her a son. And so we get to the beginning of chapter 2, where Hannah has received news that she is pregnant, and she prays a prayer of rejoicing to God about this news of, of her pregnancy. And the interesting part about that prayer is that the, the prayer of Hannah is fundamental to your understanding of the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, actually. But it, you, when you read it, you understand what she's praying and what she's setting up explains how we're to see the rest of the book. This is what she says in verse 6, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Is it height? Is it strength? Is it good looks? Is it wealth that exalts the King? No, it is the Lord that exalts the King. So in First and Second Samuel, God is, is building His kingdom out of the ashes of this just depraved nation of Israel that has no desire to even seek after Him and that is trapped in disobedience. And throughout this book, Israel is going to time and time again seek to cast God off, to throw away His rule from over them, 
to just put him aside, not give any consideration, subvert his agenda, do anything and everything they can and want to, to try to get God's rule off of them. And that's what we see them in right now. But as you see, Hannah makes clear, no matter which way they turn, no matter how they try to subvert his rule or his agenda, no matter what they attempt to do, they only end up ever doing exactly what God has decreed to happen. Because it's His will that prevails. He's the one that rises up and brings down to the grave. Now flash forward to chapter 8. The people of Israel, they're fed up with God. They want to throw Him off. And they're fed up with this system of judges that God has given to them. Samuel was okay. They admit that. He was pretty righteous and they can't ever see anything that he did wrong to him. But his sons are worthless. They're vile and we don't want anything to do with them. See, worshiping God has its moments, they say, but last time we dragged the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, we got stomped and the Ark was captured. See, we want a king instead of these judges. A king will fight our battles. A king will establish an army. A king will be someone we can depend on. Give us someone impressive. Go back to Hannah's prayer. Who's the one that controls us? So God answers their prayers. He gives them exactly what they want. He has appointed Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is tall, he's handsome, and he's rich. Saul looks like everything Israel would ever choose in a king. If you gave them their checklist, Saul checks all the boxes and then some. He's all that they could ever draw up for a king. And God has appointed him king, like we saw last week, by having the prophet Samuel anoint him as king over his people. And that was a private ceremony. Now this morning, he's going to be introduced to his people. They're going to be introduced to him. And there are two realities in this passage that I want us to dwell on that are not only true for the people of Israel, but they're true of all God's people throughout time. And they're going to help us define what it actually means to be a people of God. When we say we are God's people, what is it we should mean? What should our lives actually look like? And we're going to see those realities, those two realities in this passage. The first reality is that God's people are dependent on Him. God's people are dependent on Him. They're always dependent on Him. You might say when you see people dependent on God, that is a marker of God's people. All right? Look at how this plays out. The people in verse 17, they're gathered there at Mizpah, a city that we think is just north of Jerusalem by just a few miles. Samuel's gathered them there for the purpose of, of introducing them to Saul, the new king of Israel. But, but first, there's a bit of history that he gives to them. And this history is important. Look at, look at verse 18. Samuel says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the, Lord's, before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So this is the first way that we see God's people are dependent on him. He says their salvation has always been by his hand. That's how they're dependent on him. Whether they know it or not, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, their salvation has always been by His hand. They've never rescued themselves from anyone. They didn't get out of Egypt by themselves. God tells them through Samuel, I'm the one that rescued you out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you here. I'm the one that saved you from their hand and everyone else's hand for that matter. I led them through the desert. He fed them. He conquered enemies. He's the one that did it, not them. And now you've rejected me, he says, who saves you from all your calamities. This pattern where the prophet goes back in history and kind of recites all the things that God has done, that normally precedes judgment. So it's normally that the prophet stands in front of the people and goes, here's all that God's done, 
You've rejected him. Now this is what he's going to do. And it's something really terrible that he's going to bring. Some form of judgment. But you see, in this passage, he tells them all God's done. He says what they've done. And now he says, here's your king. So it kind of leaves you with the idea that the king is kind of part of the judgment, right? Some of you seasoned veterans out there will remember maybe such times in your past where your parent pulled over to the side of the road and had you go pick your own switch. Anybody? Can, can anybody say amen? All right. Now, my switch was always around my dad's waist. He just unbuckled and just... My dad's here, actually. I'm ratting you out. But don't worry. They're all on your side. So, um, But anyway, you, ha- you picked your own switch. And, and when you were a rookie at this, you might have gone into the woods there and you picked this little thin, pliable one because you were like, oh man, he can't, he can't hit me with that one. You know, this won't hurt a bit. And then you realize that that thin, flimsy one actually had a kind of a bullwhip action across your hind parts. And it just sort of got you everywhere, didn't it? And it just sort of left you left you ringing at the end of it. Well, God is basically here telling them, pick your own switch, all right? And he's fine with the switch they've picked. And when they come back with this king, God knows this one is going to sting. And we actually see God is the one that picked the switch. (laughs) And he says, look, it's punishment enough. All right, having this king over you. So he gathers them together. They cast lots to see who the king is. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second. Didn't Samuel anoint the king last week? We just saw that. He poured oil on all the stuff. He did all the things that, the king, that he's supposed to do to anoint the king. Well, yes, he anointed him in a private ceremony. And remember, they trust Samuel. But remember who he also anointed? As judges, he he put his sons over particular areas, and they didn't like his sons. And so, here is Samuel saying, this is whom God has chosen. Now, let me roll the dice, essentially. Let me cast lots, and you'll see as a way of demonstration that this is actually who the king should be. So, really, God has kind of pulled up to a place with one switch, and that's the one you pick, essentially. And so, this is the one whom God has chosen. So they cast lots. It lands on the tribe of Benjamin. They cast more lots, kind of like rolling of dice. It lands on the clan of the Matrites. Eventually, they work their way down to Kish's son, Saul. So we have our king, and he's right here. Anybody seen Saul? He's supposed to be here. They, they look around, they can't find him. He's, he's well, maybe we, does he have a son? Maybe he's really old. Does he, does, is there, is there another one? Did we miss something somewhere? And so what do they have to do? They have to turn to God because they can't find Him. And so they ask, well, where's He gone? Do we need to search for another? And the Lord says, no. He's hidden Himself among the baggage. Now the baggage is most likely military gear. They have brought all their military gear here to the field because they've got the Ammonites on one side breathing down their neck. They've got the Philistines on another side breathing down their neck. They're about to appoint a king to lead them into battle. So there's thought, maybe, this king is going to be appointed. Get your gear on, men. We're going into battle. Or, potentially, we're all gathered in one place. The Philistines and the Ammonites might attack. So they've got their military gear. And irony of all ironies, the king, who is a little bit sheepish, shall we say, of taking authority, hides himself amongst the armor. See, this has apparently provided Saul with significant cover to hide out. Now, maybe this will all go away. But it's likely also one last illustration of Israel's abundant need for God. First, they actually need help to find the king to lead them. They have to go to God after casting lots to see whom God has chosen, then they have to go to him once again to say, we can't even find him now that we've identified him. We're still dependent on you. 
But second, what I think you have to realize is that God is going to have to strengthen this guy's hand if he's going to lead us into battle. You see, he's supposed to lead them into battle, but instead of strapping the armor on, he's hiding behind it. There's a fine line between putting the shield on your arm and using it as a shield and hiding behind the military equipment, which is what Saul has done. So the Israelites are no doubt seeing that our sheepish king is going to have to be strengthened by the Lord in order to actually lead us into battle. There's no doubt here a not-so-subtle message to all of Israel that would hear this ever in the future. God is always going to be depended on by His people. You can have your kings, you can have your leaders, you can have your chariots, you can have your horses, but God is going to be the one that fights for His people, always. And that is never going to change. There's no running from that. Nevertheless, they have their king. And Samuel, I think the way to read this is gets one last dig in here at the end. Maybe a bit of sarcasm is intended here, like something like, See? Here you have no one like him in all of Israel, hiding amongst the baggage. Here's your guy. He's taller, he's stronger, he's richer. Sure, you have to drag him out from under the table to get him to fight, but he's here. Here is your king, exactly what you wanted. And as we'll see in a minute, some people found this whole episode a little bit disturbing, a little bit troubling. So first we see this reality is in this passage that God's people are always dependent on Him. But the second reality we see is that God's people must submit to His will. It's not just sufficient to say you're dependent on God. What does that dependence actually look like? But that you submit to His will. Now this part of the passage is a little bit jarring, I think, when you first read it and really think about it when you stop to think about what's going on. But the kingship has been established. And that means that for the rest of well, eternity, really, but certainly as long as they're a nation, Israel will be a servant to a king. And so the kingship has been established, and King Saul has been appointed in, as the king in the first position. And so it says in verse 25 then, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Now what all he said to them, and what all he wrote down in the book, and put before the Lord, we don't know. We don't have that book. But it's not as though God hasn't already told us what the responsibilities of Israel's king are going to be. I read a passage last couple of weeks, I think it was two weeks ago, but it bears repeating here that this whole section of 1 Samuel is tied directly to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. We already know what a king of Israel is supposed to look like. Moses gave it to us in Deuteronomy. And he says this, When you come to the land that your Lord, the Lord your God has given, to, given you to possess, but to possess it and dwell in it, and then, then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, 
so that he may continue long in his kingdom, and he and his children in Israel. Now, don't miss this. In Samuel, the people have said, we want a king like all other nations. But if you read in Deuteronomy the responsibilities here of the king, and we can only assume that that is directly connected to what Samuel wrote down and spoke to the people and laid before the Lord, was a connection back here to Deuteronomy 17. If you read the responsibilities laid out there for the king, a king was certainly possible for the people of Israel, even probably expected for the people of Israel. But there is under no circumstance any reality where the king of Israel is going to be like all the rest of the nations. At all. That was never going to happen. The king over Israel is effectively a biblical scholar in the land. Maybe you might even say the foremost biblical scholar in the land so that he wouldn't turn to his right or to his left. He was going to be led by God directly. He wasn't going to be a military commander because he wasn't going to acquire chariots and horses and all those things for himself. Nor was he going to depend on the military might of other nations. He wasn't going to go back to Egypt. He was forbidden to do so. He wasn't going to become a rich politician. He was going to have his own copy of the law that he copied down by his own hand that he knew backwards and forwards. He'll be humble. He's not going to be exalted above his brothers. He's going to be a humble person. He won't break God's law. When you think about that, the description of Israel's king, who matches that? I mean, you could go down through Israel's history, time and again, each king shows promise. Hey, this might be the one. No. Hey, this might be the one. No. So you walk down the line of Israel's history, and each one of them fail, sometimes in spectacular ways. I mean, like a blaze of glory go down, right? Until you get to the New Testament. And then there's one that stands on the throne. We'll talk about him in a minute. But what we see now is that even though they're setting a king over themselves, it's not as though they can get away from having to submit to God. The king who leads them is going to have to submit to God in every way. And he's going to lead them according to the statutes of God. So, the, so God is the one determining the rules for the king. So the first way that we see God's people having to submit to his will is that the king is, that they're appointing is going to have to be accountable to God in every way. So they have to submit to his rules for the kingship. But see, there's a second way that I want you to understand, and it is perhaps even the more important aspect of this passage. Look at verses 26 and 27. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went the men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. There is a division already with the appointed king in the nation of Israel. Some people whose hearts God had touched that want to submit to the king. Other people whose hearts God had not touched are described as worthless and they don't want to submit to the king. And what we will find out is it wasn't a king. They didn't care if it was a king. They didn't care if it's Samuel. They actually don't care if it's Jesus himself. They don't want to submit to God is the reality. So we see this group of men that, that followed Saul back home to Gibeah. They're military leaders, future secret service bodyguards, just maybe champions of his campaign. But they followed him home and supported his kingship. They're probably the same ones at the end of verse 24 who are shouting, Long live the king, in spite of his many uh, faults, let's say. But the, the author calls them men of valor. But then there's this second group of people, and this group asks the question in verse 27, how can this man save us? Now you understand that that question on the surface seems to be on the same side God is on. God told the people of Israel, 
you rejected me. You rejected the hand that saved you. And here's some men, it seems like maybe, going, yeah, how can this guy save us? But that's not what the author says about them. The author actually chastises them. He calls them worthless fellows. The word is sometimes used for sons of worthlessness, even sometimes sons of the devil. But the point is that the author doesn't mince words when he's describing these people. They're worthless. And we're meant to understand their worthlessness by the question they ask, how can this man save us? You see, there's two problems that we see just by their question. The first problem is that it reveals their lack of spiritual awareness to what the king was really supposed to do. Look up, remember, at verse 18 and 19. I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians. But today you have rejected your God who saves you. Who is it that saves Israel? It's God. Who is it that they're supposed to be dependent on? It's God. It has always been, and it will always be, the God of Israel who alone saves. In the Psalms, the psalmist is going to point this out. It's not chariots and horses that you need to trust in. It's God who saves. The prophets are going to continue to point this out. There should be no confusion about this fact, but their question belies their ignorance of these fundamental spiritual realities for God's people. They will always be dependent on God, and they will always be in submission to Him for salvation. Always and ever. But second, their question reveals a lack of submission to God's will. They know this. They understand this. Their question is actually subverting the will of God. That's the problem. They're not on God's side. They're diametrically opposed to God. Perhaps you might misread this whole section of 1 Samuel, and you might think that the people have come forward asking for a king, and this just upset all of God's plans that he was otherwise going to put off without a hitch. Now the people have rejected God, they've demanded a king, and now God's just up in heaven and he's just perplexed. And he walks into the angels in the boardroom meeting and he says, well, look at this, our shareholders are dumping the stock because they want me out as CEO. But pay careful attention to what Samuel says to the people in verse 24. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Did you choose your own switch? Looks like the Lord chose this king. Who chose the king? It was God who chose the king. Not only that, but God chose a king who by all accounts doesn't actually want to be king. He's seeking every way to avoid being king. He questions Samuel when Samuel anoints him. He hides among the baggage when it comes time to introduce him to Israel. Every indication we have is that Saul, though he is big and tall and strong and mighty and even rich, has no desire to be king over Israel, but God has chosen him. And so, what does that mean? Does he get to get out of it? Does he get a say? No, he is king. There is no more questions. But when they ask their question, can this man really save us? It's actually questioning what God has done in giving the people this leader. Like, God has chosen this guy who's hiding out among the baggage? There's no way this guy can save us. Can this man really save? Well, no, you fool. This man can't save you, nor can any other man save you. It's God who saves you. That box that you drug out onto the, the battlefield, it didn't save you either. All they're looking for is another good luck charm to replace the one that came before it. Only God saves you. Don't you pay attention in Bible school? But you see, Saul is no ordinary man. No, no. The king of Israel is no ordinary man. This is a man God has chosen for a specific task. God has appointed your leader and you are to submit to Him and to His authority. 
And to refuse to submit to Him and to His authority is actually to refuse to submit to God's authority over you. But instead, they refused. They refused to honor Him. It says they despised Him, and they brought Him no present, but He held His peace. In this passage, God has made clear that wanting the king, uh, the, the kind of king that, that Israel wants is a blatant rejection of God. He's the only one that brings them out of slavery. He's the only one that saves. And you've wanted someone to replace him. But after God installs Saul as king, this passage calls the ones who reject Saul worthless fellows. Now you might look at this and you say, hey, they have good reason. Saul's a coward. There's nothing in him that is worth following. He does not seem at all worthy of following. We're on your side, right, God? I don't think this guy's good either. No, you're worthless. Because this is the one that I've chosen over you. See, they're refusing to submit to God's authority over his people, and that is the fundamental problem. But this doesn't stop in the Old Testament. The line of Saul eventually gets to David, who replaces Saul's line. David's line eventually gets to Jesus, who reigns as king over all, who presents himself as perfect and righteous in every way. And here's the understanding we get from the New Testament, that submission to God's king, Jesus, is mandated for all God's people. Oh wait, hasn't really changed from the Old Testament, has it? Nope. It's the same song, second verse. God's king is established on his throne, and submission to Jesus as king is necessary for all God's people. And who is it that end up bending their knee to King Jesus, but the ones whose hearts God has touched? And all others remain to Jesus worthless fellows which we will see ferreted out in Judgment Day. You see the through line? The line that continues from Old Testament to New Testament? God's placing His King over His people, and it's a call to submit to that King. And the willingness of God's people to submit to the King defines who are His people and who are not His people. So Jesus is going to say in the New Testament, why do you call Me Lord and don't do what I'm telling you? Submission is required. Submission is required, but it's not always super clear how. See, we might all agree in this room. We submit to King Jesus he is the authority over me. But do we? How do we know? I think we've done a great disservice to Christians by not unpacking carefully how fundamental submission is to Christianity. Submission in all capacities to Christianity. Now, we're about to get really uncomfortable, so just sit tight. The word submission has become a curse word in our culture, and it's actually become a curse word in every culture throughout time. Humanity, by its nature, does not want to submit to anyone or anything. No one likes to be told to submit. And yet, the Bible unashamedly tells us to submit time and time and time again to people who are in authority over us. You notice that? There's a connection between your submission to King Jesus and your being called a Christian and the way you submit to people who are in authority over you. Just as a few examples. Wives are told to submit to your husbands in the same way as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ and to demonstrate that your hope is in God. That's Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3.5. Church members are told to submit to and obey your leaders, the elders of the church, as they have charge over your souls and will give an account to Christ. That's Hebrews 13, 17, 1 Peter 5, 5, and many others. Church members are told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 21. Christians should be subject to every fellow worker and laborer for the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, 16. 
Children are called to obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1, Colossians 3, 20. Bond servants, their masters, or if we were to put that in today's vernacular, employees, your bosses, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Colossians 3, 22. All of us should be subject to the governing authorities in every human institution because they have been put there by God. Romans 13, 1-2. 1 Peter 2.13. And of course, there are numerous commands to obey and submit to God's commands in the New Testament. And these demonstrate your love for God. 1 John 5.2. See, Paul preached the gospel. Peter preached the gospel. And then when they explain what it looks like as it's applied to you, they say submit to people who are in authority over you. Honor one another, love one another, care for one another. See, it's easy to see the commands in Scripture to obey, submit, or be subject to other people. But that's not all I want you to see. So it does say obey, obey, obey. Submit, submit, submit. Be subject to, be subject to, be subject to. Honor, revere, respect. But that's not all you need to see. You need to see the connection to the reason why. Each of those commands that I laid out there for you is rooted in your submission to Christ as sovereign authority over all. I promise you, every time the command to submit gets brought up, most people in our churches, particularly American churches, think of all the exceptions where we don't obey. Right? Well, yeah, but how do I get out of this call to submit? To authority. There, there's got to be a reason. This guy's an imbecile. So can I? Doesn't that, isn't there an imbecile clause somewhere? Romans 13b, 1b or something? Surely it's in there. What about this and what about that? Let me just say, if someone commands you to worship something other than Christ or to disobey what Christ has explicitly commanded, you do not submit to that because Christ is king. All right? There's your exception. That is plainly obvious. And that's a real exception. I'm not just meaning to throw that out there like it's not a real exception. We have, we have unbelieving husbands who want to try to dictate their wives' schedule at church or if they can go to church. I'm not saying we have that here. I'm just saying in churches that that's a reality. That happens. We have, right now, you can work in a place in this culture where they demand you deny fundamental realities that God has laid out in His, in His Word, right? And you can get fired for not accepting those realities. If you even believe you know what a male and a female is, you can be fired for that. I mean, if you don't accept all kinds of different marriages, if you accept a biblical definition of marriage, you can be fired for that. Well, under no circumstances do we ever submit to that. That's where a government or a place of employment or even a husband oversteps his bounds that God has given to him and tries to take his swivel chair and put it in the place of Christ's throne. Never can he do that. All right? And we can't submit to those things. So it's a real exception. I'm not just meaning to say, ah, it's, you know, it's, it's not real. No, it is real. And it does happen to people every day. So that's the exception. But are you ready for the rule? Are you ready for the rule? Romans 13, 1-2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. That's about as strong as you can put a call to submission. There are exceptions. We know what those are. But Paul, those exceptions aside, makes it unequivocal what it means to actually submit to Christ. You can add to the, when he says governing authorities, all the rest of the New Testament that it tells you to obey and submit to. Christian, your understanding of what Christ has accomplished and your desire to submit to Him is tested by your obedience to those who are in authority over you. If you really do believe Christ is sovereign over all, then everyone from your boss 
to your president, to your king, or whomever is appointed by Christ the true sovereign ruler to exercise authority. God has put him there. That's daunting. Because sometimes we feel like that person is not worth following. I don't think I should have to submit to that person. We have to be honest, this cuts against our very nature as Americans even. The country that we're brought up in. We're quite used to being free-thinking, independent, freedom-loving, pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, submit-to-no-one kinds of people. Our mantra in this land is the land of freedom and opportunity. Freedom. Not service. Freedom. But you understand that the call to follow Christ is a call first and foremost to submission. You are to submit to God who is King, not in some distant sense where He doesn't know the everyday affairs of His people, but who is sovereign over every molecule of His creation. You understand right now, if you're, if you're not following Christ, if you're not someone who considers himself even a Christian, you understand what we're calling you to in a relationship with Christ is bowing your knee in submission to God who is over all, who is authority over all. That means where He marches and says to march, you march right in lockstep with Him. What He says is morally depraved and evil, you say is morally depraved and evil. What He says is right and good, you say is right and good. We define our lives the way He defines them. That's what we're submitting to. So when we come forward to Christ, it's not just a mere, yeah, I believe that guy rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. No. This is not mental assent to the fact that I think there could have been a guy 2,000 years ago that did these things. That's not what we're asking for. That's not what Christ is asking for. That's not what He's demanding. He is demanding repentance. Do you see it my way? And if you do, you submit all things to Christ who came and died living a perfect life, died for your sins, rose again on the third day. And here's the part of the Gospel that we often ignore is that He ascended to the right hand of God the Father where He is right now ruling and reigning and will one day judge the living and the dead when He returns. That's the part we often forget. The culture wants to call back to the Gospels and see the good, loving, soft, kind Jesus that would never do anything about anything. But they don't flash forward to the Revelation Jesus who rides on a white horse, slaying His enemies and judging. So the question is, are you going to submit to Him or not? That is the real question. Whose authority is going to be over your life? Are you going to attempt to cast off God's authority and try to be your own authority, which will not end well, it will end in eternity in hell? Or are you going to now submit to Christ's authority over you? That's the question. Very easy. It's a simple choice. It's binary. A or B, black or white. But see, something happens to you when you truly begin to submit to Christ as King over you. When you really do have Christ on the throne of your heart, here's what happens. Nobody else can threaten you. Nobody else can threaten you. Paul is living under the persecution of the Roman Empire. And he says, submit to all governing authorities. What did Paul do? Went straight in chains to be beheaded. Why? Because they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. See, when Christ is king in your heart, nobody else poses a threat. So when it comes time to submit to authority, bosses or whomever, it's no problem. They don't threaten me. I know who is really king. I know who has put them there on the throne. I know who can take them down off that throne. I know who has real authority here, and I'm not in any way threatened. So I don't feel the need to subvert anyone's authority because I, I understand who put them there to begin with. 
I don't have to say, well, they don't understand how to do things like I do. They don't see it my way. If Christ has appointed them over me, I, can, I don't have to subvert their authority. Because in subverting their authority is subverting His authority. What does it really mean to submit to Christ as King? Well, these worthless fellows are about to find out. Throughout the, etern- the entirety of the Scriptures, two things will become absolutely always true of God's people. Old Testament, New Testament. God's people will be the ones who are dependent on Him and who submit to His will. That's not something we should just be saying in such a way that it loses all meaning. It's something that we're actually called to demonstrate in our daily attitude over the big and small things in life. It doesn't matter who's been put in authority over you, whether they know what they're doing or not. Does your confidence in the sovereign authority of Christ lead you to to a humble posture before all who are in authority over you? Are you a person of valor whose heart God has touched? Or are you a worthless fellow who sits on the sidelines undermining all forms of authority and picking out all the reasons why you don't have to obey? Your ability to follow earthly earthly leadership demonstrates the faith that you say you have in the one true King. What are God's people going to look like? Are they going to be people who are led? Because if they're not led by earthly leaders, they'll never be led by Christ as king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for its uh, intricate nature, for all the many nuances that are in there, all the ways you clearly spell out what your will is, all the ways that through investigation and digging, reward us with treasures that are unspeakable sometimes. We pray that we would be creatures of your word, and not just creatures of your word, but people who see and have you as on the throne of our hearts, who continually look to Christ as king, who know that all of our submission all of our desire to follow, even our desire to lead, is submission to your authority over all. I pray that you would turn our eyes to Christ, always. The way we interact with people, they would change. The way we behave at work, change. The way we even think about our place on this earth and what we're doing would change all in light of Christ sitting on the throne of our hearts. Pray that you would do that for us as a church body, for us as individual Christians, now and always in Jesus' name. Amen.